We'll start today. Uh, I figured that I'm going to not do a little intro separately um, just because we're recording near the end of May and I want to get this out near the beginning of June. So that'll streamline things for me a little bit. So this is the fourth roundtable we've done. So if you've listened before, you know how it goes. If you haven't listened yet and this is your first one, you'll see how it goes. So uh, without, uh, you know, bogging things down too much. Uh, my name is Aaron Lolito. I'm the main editor at Wild Root Journal, and I've collected uh, three other participants to join me today uh, in our discussion. So everybody will just go around, do uh, a little bit of who you are, why you're here, and whatever you want to add. Um, I guess, Chris, you're the longest tenured roundtable <laughs> participant, so uh, you could uh, go first. Hi, my name is Chris. I uh, teach during the week. I teach the English to the community college students. Uh, that's how I kind of think of uh, daily practice in terms of trying to stay engaged with writing. And I heard uh, you, Shannon, mention psychology, which was my other major in college. And during the weekends, I play music and try to write as best I can. Nice. Uh, Anna, you're a return guest as well. So uh, introduce yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Um, my name is Anna Schechter, and I am a recent graduate of Sarah Lawrence College, um, where I concentrated in creative writing. And I'm a reader at Wild Roof Journal, so I review submissions, and I'm excited to talk about this work tonight. All right, thanks. And we have one newcomer, Shannon. Yeah, so I'm super excited to be here. I uh, found out about this through the Wildlife Wild Roof Journal workshop that Erin did a few months ago that was uh, really a rewarding experience. And I am living in Quebec City, and I'm doing my my doctorate in clinical psychology. So poetry is sort of on the side. I do I do have an English major, but I didn't didn't go that way. But I'm still um, still writing, still reading. So really excited to be here and just have a little bit of a community and discuss poetry because it's not something I get to do very often. So thanks for the invitation. Okay, you're welcome. We'll jump into it a little bit with, I think it was one of Shannon's selections. So uh, Shannon and Anna both have uh, two selections and we'll kind of see what we liked about them, what we get out of them, speculate a little bit, try to interpret them as best we can and uh, offer up a couple of questions along the way. Shannon, your first selection was from Kelly Gray title of the poem is The Everlasting Eulogy of Lush. What was the the appeal of that one for you? Could you just talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So this poem, I have so many things to say about this poem, but I think that um, it struck me so much in the way that it combines sort of this reflection on, I would say, on mortality or on death in some ways that is quite subtle and a little bit disturbing even with this really uh, sensual and erotic language. And I found the, the juxtaposition of those two themes really fascinating. And I, I think the, the mechanism just of the, of the poetry in general is really, really sophisticated. Um, so I love the sort of more individual comments and so on, but I'm also really curious to get other people's sort of initial impressions about sort of how that poem came, came off to you and just off the very top uh, i feel a little cheated because you picked my favorite first of the four pieces 
this is the one that uh, kind of hit the most notes or I felt I related to on the most uh, points. And I think you used juxtaposition and you talked about the eroticism factor, but there is a, a sophistication of language. It's just a baseline facility here that I appreciated at the same time. And mm -hmm. just to see that many moving parts in one place was exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I was, yeah, I was absolutely, I mean, I was kind of stopped in my tracks reading this. I think like there's almost this like incantation happening almost. Mm -hmm. There's like, there's some real, real power here. And just some of the sounds, I mean, lush slut. <laughs> it's so strong and it's it's a mouthful it's hard to get out and it's so powerful and the the lifting that happens just adds mm -hmm. to this richness and it, it was it's it was this lush experience so the title and the content match beautifully with the language absolutely i i should have said this at the very beginning but is it okay i don't actually should have asked this before we started, but is it okay for me to, to read the poem to to have it said because it's not super long? Sure, that that works too, and we'll okay. have the you know the the text version on the on the website, right, right, of course. like that. But yeah, yeah. I, I think reading it. Um, There's something about reading it, especially out loud. <laughs> with, yeah, lends itself pretty well to the short one. So yeah, go for it. Okay, so the everlasting eulogy of lush, lush being one of my words intimate because I have lived with ferns, their dim undersides holding rows of circled spores laid neatly in shadow, dust sex and wind blow. I am lush sideways salvation, the way I creep through your orchard raising skirt. La, the sound of moan with loop, ush the last whisper, death rattle of lonely, pretty in creek walk, I give you lip. You come at me, mountain, our home, a wood field where deer go to die. We fill our stove with bones, cloven hooves, broth, steam marrow against winter, the glass cries drip. It's the wind, you say, trying to find me to you. I am lush slut, spoke softly, your bottom lip dragging. There was never any poetry without you in it. There was never any poetry. There was never. Everyone has a song, but we have a wet, drunken word, born of walk and bed. So, so much to love about this poem. I'll run through a few of the sort of the highlights and the things that stood out to me real quick. First, just the starting with the title, the the, the word eulogy, I think, really frames how we approach the poem because. My friend, the friend, it immediately sort of begs the question. So we have a eulogy of Lush. Is it, is it a eulogy that's like about Lush or a eulogy that's by Lush, whatever Lush is standing for in the poem? And, and, and then just the term eulogy makes us think like we're praising something. Um, but often this is for something that is, that is dead or someone that is dead that is no longer there. And so we have that tension there, I think. And then, um, I have lived with ferns, like this implication of this closeness to nature that is more than a passing familiarity, but is like lived with is strong. It's like I, I, I know ferns, or whatever that means, or whatever that stands for. This, this is sort of a, an implication, I think, of having learned something, having known something, gone through this experience. 
and then dust sex. I just, I just, I think that's the first time that that's been used in the English language, like dust sex, and it just fits so well. It doesn't, you, you almost don't even realize that that it's kind of weird, but that gives to me like putting those things together. Some the the, the dust word there. I think something ephemeral, something that doesn't last, something that's impermanent or earthly, organic, something that can be blown away. And of course, we have sort of wind blow there as well, and the wind comes up later in the poem. And then there's just so much sort of sensual, visceral eroticism here. In, in the very first line, you know, we have my word intimate, there's something intimate about, about lush. It's going through the orchard, raising skirts, the salivation, the moan, I give you lip, lush, slut, the wet, drunken word, all of these things that, that come together really well. And then, um, and I, I, it's interesting, I think, you know, in the, in the second stanza, we have like the speaker sort of identifying the second and the fourth, identifying as lush. So I am lush. I am this experience, this, this connection. What is this? And then in the second stanza, we have the, the speaker sort of in an active role. We can imagine like an active lover role almost, sort of creeping through the orchard, raising skirt, giving lip. And then we reverse that. And we have in the third stanza, and then it's you. And we don't know who you is, but mountain is capitalized as if it's a name. And then we have the first time we, we see you is your orchard. So we think so is the other the other party in the poem. Is it like... Is it the natural world in some way? Is it is it maybe 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 a person that's represented by the natural world? There's, there's different possibilities there that I think is really really interesting. And then we start dealing with this um this language of of death, right? Of the last whisper, the death rattle, the, the loneliness, the filling our stove with bones. Never any poetry without you, as if you're not there anymore. And, all of these different things that are that are working together, and then the uh, something that uh, sort of a paradoxical twist that I find really interesting in this this third stanza that starts with you come out in the mountain, is it's like we have this imagery of death, like the bones in the stove, a field where deer go to die, but then we're using that in some way as a defensive sort of tension against winter, um, or steaming marrow against winter, against and then we have the wind coming back that we had at the beginning, the wind blow, the six and wind blow, the wind like as if it's a, a medium of connection in some way. So I I, I know I'm, I'm I'm losing it here. I'm so much so many different ideas. So I'll stop. But um, just I think I would just close with like this sort of idea that there's kind of a progression, I think, towards uh, towards maybe stages we have like sort of a spring with orchard and then winter coming later, walk and bed life and death in some way. And the the lush slut spoke softly. We have like a toning down, the bottom lip dragging as if there's something changing, something that's being lost. Um, so so I don't really have a lot of conclusions. I, I'm never very good at it trying to um, give one interpretation to a poem, but I love this, all the way that the, these themes are brought together. Um, and, I, and I'll stop now because I know I'm talking way too long, but um, yes, <laughs> that's my, my take. Yeah, Chris, I, you, you said it, uh, there's a lot of moving parts when you said that, I'm like, yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. So yeah, go ahead. Nowhere to begin because again, so many interesting moving parts, just to pick up on one riff, the musician in me wants to focus on one aspect of the cycle, which is 
things rot and decay, but of course they produce things that are fertile. And once things are fertile, that gives the opportunity for growth and spring. And I believe it's, I'm stealing most of this from Cornell West, who is a writer and philosopher that I have kind of a crush on right now. And he talks about the things that are rotten uh, are the things that kind of smell bad and are weird and gross and lush. But that's, of course, where funk comes from. The word funk could have that negative connotation, but it also is kind of that wet, earthy, fertile place where new life grows out of. And he hypothesizes that funk music is called that because it's kind of earthy and it's kind of slushy, but it's also kind of sexual at the same time. And he kind of uh, ties music in, in into that and cycle in a way that is extremely appealing so that when I go through this, I see the sound innovation in the stanzas. I kind of feel a rhythm to it. And I also see that theme echoed. And that was uh, kind of a nice, uh, easy way to kind of start uh, being drawn into a poem that initially I might have been suspicious of the title or, or had kind of my willingness to second guess something like the word lush. I saw the word lush, and then I saw, what's the phrase? I give you lip. And in my head, I was hearing like a 1920s voice. Ah, you're a lush. You drink too much. Uh, or, ah, you're going to give him some lip. And so uh, the first time through the poem, that kind of tainted it, because I was hearing that 1930s kind of black and white movie style. But then two or three times through, uh, everything started to get more complex the more I read it. Absolutely, yeah. That's a... <laughs> It's kind of a, it's a good play on words in the sense that it almost it kind of gives you a little, little bit of a misdirection, or at least it could have potentials there. But yeah, just like what you were saying about funk music and the sexuality of that, going back to the dust sex, there's a I mean, you can go a lot of different directions with a phrase like that, but just one layer of it is like the literal, which, uh, you know, if you look at the surface of my car, which is parked under a huge maple tree and a huge oak tree, like you kind of get what one layer of that meaning is. It's like, yeah, I mean, I could wash my car at 2 p.m. and by 3.30, like it's, you know, it's not clean anymore. Um, this time of year, especially like, you know, within the past couple of weeks. So, you know, these, these trees are doing a lot of <laughs> a lot of stuff that, you know. <laughs> Maybe, you know, you don't think about it in those terms, you know, when you see your car covered in this green powder and like the brown things, you know, the little spindly, uh, whatever those things that come off the oak tree are. But yeah, and then there's obviously the, the, the you know, the human side of things, not just the trees. Is uh, anybody aware that this is a cicada cycle that we're in like one of those 17 year episodes where all the funky stuff in the ground, it's been mulching and uh, being fed it over time. Apparently, we're in that peak season, so look out for cicadas. Okay, I didn't know that. <laughs> they come back in prime number of years. They learned that yesterday. <laughs> you know, yeah, you mentioned, uh, Shannon, there's a, you know, kind of a, lot to, a lot to touch on. Another layer of it going, that personal conflict that's kind of read as a personal conflict. Like the line that got me when I got to is, you come at me, mountain. Mm-hmm. And that's... For whatever reason, that that play on impersonal nature, and like you you said, I didn't even think of it. It's capitalized like a name, which gives it a like almost a personal thing, and it it's presented as like a personal conflict. I kind of read it as you know, here's this thing coming at me, 
um, and I got to survive this. Like, you know, if I if I don't do it right, I might not make it to the other side right. because of this thing. And just it brings in, like you said, the mortality and the kind of the, the literal layer of it with winter, but also kind of more the metaphorical layer of it of you know sustaining a conflict or finding finding a way out of um, you know some kind of situation that looks uh, grave at the time. When thought about the conclusion was when she says that when she writes, everyone has a song, but we have a wet, drunken word born of walk in bed. And there's lots of sort of things we can refer back to about what that, that sort of experience could be. And it's just a, 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 something that, that seems like an unasked and unanswered question there is like, is what we have better than the song that everybody else has? Or is it harder? Is it more more of something? And I, I, I don't really have an answer to that, but it really just made me sort of reflect on that. It's like that that implied comparison. Did anybody, did anybody else get that? Yeah, now that you mention it too, yeah, there is almost, there is that comparison there. I don't know if this is the right analogy, but it's, you know, it's, it's uh, maybe a song you can dance to versus you know a song that's technically maybe better or shows a higher proficiency with the instrumentation um but it's maybe just a an exercise to show how good you are with you know playing a trumpet um <laughs> but you can't dance to it so i don't know if that is kind of the right you know the way, oh, right way to approach it but I, that's kind of what i connected it to well there's also this like really harsh and vicious language here and some you know there's really some biting and leering language too I mean there's I mean yeah I think of the word slut being in there and just you know there's there's definitely like some sort of anger um and whether that's towards in internal you or an external you I'm not sure but I don't know this you come at me mountain there's something colossal inside this little house where there's steaming marrow um, and trying to fight off winter so there's this internal external conflict and there's something grating about it and um, spiteful um, which is it's exciting and I, I enjoy it but there's definitely like if you if you were to dance to this poem, I mean, it would not be a happy dance, I don't think. Yeah, there's yeah, exactly. I mean, I think there's probably something to that. Yeah, it's not it's not a happy dance. Um, that's probably true. It's, this might be connected, or it might this might be a little bit um, skewed, but uh, I I always have my cliche radar turned up a little too high, so I get really annoyed. Mm -hmm. If I hear a traditional version of the circle of life and everything needs to die to create rebirth. And I wonder now that I'm kind of listening for that anger or that hostility, if there's kind of like a, uh, a willingness to question the traditional life cycle that everything has to die to create new life. And I kind of respect that, that that actually is in some ways maybe a braver philosophical position to say that, well, death might be natural, but it's kind of also terrible kind of the, willingness to be angry to kind of the Dylan Thomas motif, rage against the dying of mm -hmm. the light. Uh, I, I respect that. I think yeah. I get that strongest in like the 
well, maybe not strongest, but but just in 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 that 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 the triplet of there was never any poetry without you in it. There was never any poetry. There was never. I I I I love that, and I I think I could make a connection with what you were just talking about, Chris, about like that, like it's not okay. Like something whatever loss we're looking at, it is not okay. This raging um, or or something. What what did you guys? take what would your all take on, on, on those three lines like that losing it by degrees you know the um, I was impressed by them because there's a certain level of mastery and like selling me the poem leading up to those where you know but when the word poetry comes up in a poem I'm always like all right this mm-hmm. is either going to be a revelation <laughs> or it's going to be a little a letdown um and so it was it worked and it's something that borders on becoming cliche or becoming kind of sentimental, but it mm-hmm. doesn't, it has this bite to it. Um, it's, I, I, as I read through it more and more, I kind of think about Sylvia Plath. Like there's, um, this natural world, but there's also this destructive force and there's this narrator, this speaker that's walking through a space and inhabiting it, but there's, such an internal terrain too I don't know I think it's, it's very strong writing and to be able to get away with that three line mm-hmm. breakdown is impressive and yeah hats off I like that you used the phrase get away with it because I had a very similar feeling as like all right here's a jazz musician who's going to try a really clever line and there's a lot of ways to do it wrong when you start saying look at me I'm about to show my technical virtuosity but it worked. I felt. That's why I wanted to save this poem for the last uh, conversation, because it seemed like the syntactical construction and the architecture actually succeeded at the level where somebody could pull off a triplet like that and, and sell it. Mm-hmm. And one yeah. of the words I wrote down uh, when I just went through it today was unsettled. I think that I mean, that's one of the other words that we could use. And I, yeah, I think it's just you just get this uneasiness about it. And yeah, part of it is maybe the the narrator, there's this definitely this tension between mortality, maybe their own mortality, maybe the reader reflecting on their own mortality. And also the fact that, you know, you go to the stove, put the bones in the pot, put the water in the <laughs> pot and, you know, cook it up or whatever, you know, whatever you used to eat, plant-based, animal-based, whatever it is, it's going to have been alive at some point. A poem called, I think it's something like Circus Animals Desertion, probably William Butler Yeats. And it's got this punchline killer ending. And it's something along the lines of now I, I'm at the bottom. The whole thing is kind of about you know, rising and falling. And now that I'm at the bottom where all ladders start in the foul and ragged bone shop of the heart. And the reason that resonated is because he uses the word slut in a way where it's like in neon lettering in that poem. And there is kind of some of that lushness imagery or some imagery that talks about rot and decay. And I just wondered if anybody heard a little echo of that or not, because I think this one's better. I think this poem is actually more successful technically than William Butler Yeats is one of my favorites. I haven't thought about that poem in a long time, actually, but yeah, what, what you, uh, <laughs> Threw that line out there. That's what rang the bell. But yeah, that's that's it. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't connect it with. Uh, I know I'm overthrowing. The one, the the poet I 
you don't even know why, but the one I thought of was um, uh, Sharon Olds with this one. Uh, just, you know, I don't know why, but that's the, 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 where my uh, mind was. Sexual but, bravery or willingness to kind of really yeah. take that stuff head on. Yeah, so that kind of, that was the direction. Yeah, that goes to show you we can uh, kind of t- take this one in a lot of different directions. So, yeah, I think that was a good one to start with. I'll have to disagree with you, Chris. We should have started with this one. Because <laughs> I think it gave us uh, uh, a lot to uh, a lot of different connections that we can now use for the other other pieces and go back to. Um, I guess that remains to be seen. But we'll go to uh, one piece that I think connects with this one pretty well. Uh, Anna, you selected a visual art piece by Sarah Decro called Blue Venus. Yes, uh, yeah, I think that this does work. Um, the setup does work of um, Lush following, of Venus following Lush. Um, so, well, I am very much drawn to collage. Um, so I did respond well to this and I, I liked looking at it. And similar to the poem we just discussed, there is this very central, erotic, yonic image, this you know, um, layered and folded rose petals taking up um, a good quarter of the collage. Um, so that definitely caught my eye first. And then those actual flowers also caught my eye. So it's just this mixed material nature of collage and just the overlapping images as well as this distilled blue Venus image that feels, I see a lot of pink in this collage and then there's this blue and it's 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 a nice moment and it's sort of celebratory but then also collage also has this amazing way of cutting up and taking apart and dissecting and so you've got jagged edges and you have visible tape and I love those little seams that come through and this feeling that all of these images were somewhere else once these flowers were in the ground once and now here they are taped to paper and constructed in this way and so this kind of transparent construction with this visible tape all of that was just kind of rolling around in my mind but yeah I definitely wanted to bring in a piece of visual art I think it's a nice compliment to talking about poetry for sure and there's even ferns in this one which connects with the uh a lush poem too just on a superficial way but yeah, I thought, I don't know if anybody thought this also, but when I looked at it first, uh, I thought the image of the woman, Venus, was a jellyfish. First thing now that you say it. <laughs> yes, no, I, I think that it's, you know, it's her hair and her back and her shoulders, but it absolutely looks sort of, it looks like a jellyfish. It looks aquatic, um, which connects to a, a later the last poem we're going to discuss actually and this this background looks like ocean water maybe mm-hmm. um and then there's like are these starfish sand dollars sand and yeah there's there's a richness of texture and a difficulty to fully decipher which is also nice the first thing i did when i saw it is I, I realized that I was watching it on a computer screen scrolling. So my first encounter wasn't the same as it would have been if I'd seen it in a gallery and the lighting is perfect and everything. So I literally had to see the top half. Oh, here's a jellyfish and, and there's a giant flower vagina. 
and my cliche the radar went off and uh, what one of these and then i looked at the next picture in the sequence from the same artist and my kind of unfolding reaction was the second was much much more pleasant aesthetically it's a kind of a leaf uh, that looks mostly photorealistic or as a photo on a blue background and then i came back to this and i said but this one is so much more interesting and of course i wanted to see if this was how overt the reference was to the botticelli uh, the birth of venus coming out of the foam on the shell and the color scheme in this matches that if you if you look at this and kind of measure the pinks to blue ratio you actually get interesting similarities and i've had a crush on that picture just as a totally amateur person who knows very little about art but here's one of the famous ones that i thought was interesting and nice and kind of physically attractive even in a sexual way and then you keep going back and forth and it seems like you get more every time you do that and uh, i think the the layering that happened as i was you know initially trying to be critical and look for cliches uh, it kind of won me over in real time. I have really little experience with um, with collage and just that kind of, of artwork and how it can can work. And a few examples that I've seen before, I think I just had sort of a the skepticism of, of somebody who's totally ignorant who doesn't know what they, what they're doing. But this one, um, I guess, because I sort of intentionally spent more time with it because. I was and I was curious about what you guys would say about it. This one, I kind of spoke to me. It was the first sort of collage piece that kind of spoke to me. And the first um, time that I thought, okay, maybe that the layering in this technique does contribute something, even if I can't quite put my finger on it. But the juxtaposition of things that just wouldn't that you wouldn't be able to put beside each other, you know, in any other kind of painting tech, a visual art technique, and which which doesn't really lead me to any conclusions, but I I, I felt like there was a depth there that I, I appreciated. Um, just seeing like the like woodland type flowers like on the ocean like that. I didn't yeah. even think of it as collage, which it obviously is now that I'm looking at it. <laughs> and my initial reaction uh, was like yours, Aaron. I think that it had the, the feel of a jellyfish. I'm looking at it now, and that is definitely a superimposition of an actual uh, hair over actual back muscles, which means I completely missed that the first time. And I think part of the attractiveness of the collage element is I wonder, presumably that was on purpose, right? Because it was ambiguous enough that I looked at it for a long time and did not see this back muscle, which now that I see it, oh, of course, that is a photorealistic picture of uh, somebody's hair coming down their back, and that adds yet another layer. I did not see the jellyfish. <laughs> Once I got the jellyfish in my head, I couldn't unsee it until right. I now realize this is a, a, a touched up photorealistic picture of somebody from Vietnam. <laughs> That's funny. It's also x-ray light, too, yeah. this photo. I mean, with the, the color that it is. And given the fact that this figure is actually facing towards the back, the rose could be an anus as much as it could be a vagina, actually, which I hadn't thought about until we started talking about the person's back. But there is this way that somehow that scale and size is able to be manipulated in collage. And something like things that are disproportionate are able to come together in one image, which is fun. And it's manipulating these flat materials and bringing new 
possibilities to them. So yeah, I yeah, I actually have um, kind of to go back to the these two pieces. The first two, um, I have a little bit from the uh, the poet in the first one and the artist oh. in the second one. Um, so I asked uh, each to give uh, just a little bit of an explanation behind the scenes, I like to call it, just to see uh, what their creative process was. So uh, I'll read them for you now. Uh, Kelly Gray's poem, uh, she said this. It is only recently that I have wandered into the world of writing love poems. To do so, I have meditated on words and spaces that speak to experiences. In this case, it was lush, and I had a particular walk or view of my home. I wanted to touch on the sound of the word as well as the feeling of wet spring love and, sens and the sensuality of both. I usually end up pivoting between micro and macro visuals to establish a landscape of feelings. So I may start with details of the spores and then pull out to the mountain. And then the, the micro view again as we explore steamy window drip in hopes that the reader starts to feel the expanse of a view. You can only have a view when you have a viewer, so I want to establish what we all see. And she has, my father is a professional photographer, and I, I often think in cinematic visuals, establish shadow, establish light, and then your characters can enter emotively yet minimally. So I think we, I mean, we hit on a couple of those things and just I guess some of those tensions that we were talking about are part of her explanation, micro versus macro, you know, character versus abstract. Yeah, but she did call it a love poem ultimately. I'm so, I'm so affirmed that she said that because I, I, I really strongly felt it was a love poem. And then I didn't want to push that because I felt like that's so cliche. And I know that Chris hates cliches, but... <laughs> I love it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I love I love cliches when they work well. I know. No country for old men is the Well, I wasn't sure if, if it was really yours. <laughs> but I also like that she had the um, technical sense of the photographer and the composition. Yeah. Uh, that also reaffirms my my sense that this is the most virtuosic of all the pieces in terms of actual skill set and, and the uh, architecture of the piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, yeah, that was interesting too because I was almost thinking of it as what I even wrote it down. Like, does this lure us into a romantic reading just because we see certain like hallmarks of it, and then we kind of get to maybe a, a, a misreading of it in that way? But it does come back around, or it's just, it's one of the layers among many. Not not to say that it would be a misreading. Well, I was going to say that I, I was going to use the phrase that I felt seduced by um the, the collage that we were looking at in the sense that initially i was suspicious and was sort of pulled into it <laughs> then i can't help but wonder the order that i read the poems in or you know i would confronted the poems and the collage in the order that you sent them and i it yeah, i must admit that it seemed like they were getting better and i wonder if that was just me being kind of pulled into the mood <laughs> so if you presented them in reverse order who knows again presentation uh, who knows? yeah exactly and then uh, Sarah Duckrow, Luvina, she said this. My love for mythology, fairy tales, and nature can be seen in much of my creative work. Blue Venus is a sensual piece. Uh, Venus is a deity of beauty, love, romance, sexuality, fertility, and femininity. Soft, sensuous lines of nature surround her, tempting the viewer in, into her presence. I think we're, uh, we're hitting some of those ideas. 
She goes on, there is a distance and lonely contemplation here too. Venus is not attended by um, or surrounded by admirers. She stands solitary in her contemplation of the sea, her birthplace, the constant ebb and flow of the waves, her only company in this moment. Yeah, I, I love that because the first thing I did was look up the Botticelli, where the central figure is surrounded yeah. by characters, and uh, you know they all have mythological com- uh, analogs. But there is a, a male god blowing on her to make her hair reveal more nudity, and somebody over here is trying to attend her and, and cover her up, and she's kind of the center of attention. And it's fantastic that I, I picked up a little of that without knowing it. And to hear the artists uh, articulate that is very comforting. <laughs> so we'll move on to the next one. I think this was Anna's selection also, Alfredo Quarto. Um, so if you want to uh, talk a little bit about that to start, and we'll go from there. Yes. So I chose this because I remember reading it while doing reviews, and it was my favorite of just poets' um, selections. So I was very happy to see it make its way into the journal. And I guess the first thing worth talking about is the title and the location of this poem, which is both difficult for me to pronounce and difficult for all of us to place. My best guess was that it is Coemo at dawn. Um, but my brother, who has a bit more Spanish than me, is saying it's perhaps Coelmo because it's not a double L, so it's not a silent L. And when you Google this word, um, you get redirected to something else and you get links to fjords in Antarctica. And this is most definitely Chile. So I was kind of lost in this title and lost in space, which I think is an important part of this poem. There's a hidden beauty and something that we are not reaching or touching, but also this is it's such a concrete little moment that is moving between the colossal and the minute. You've got these mountains and these little tiny insects. Um, and I just think there's some very beautiful like sonic power and rhythm building in the poem, but it's also, it's, it's so small and that word idol uh, obviously it just always makes me think of Mary Oliver idol and blessed and this feels similar it's a um a communion with nature and what better way could the poet have spent their time is sort of the lingering question or how much time is spent in idleness and yeah it was it's it's a gorgeous and extended moment that still feels kind of sparse, but is also image rich. So there was a lot here in a tiny little amount of space and a little amount of a few, a few words really. Um, and I was very happy to see it once again. Yeah. And just to place uh, the location, uh, Coelmo maybe is the way you'd say it. Like you said, yeah, it's in, I guess, relatively Southern Chile. Um, yeah, Patagonia, and then it's pretty much like ancient forest. I mean, he calls it an ancient forest. So that's what it is. So there's um, a type of tree, which again I learned. I've learned a lot the past couple of days. Apparently, um, alarce is a type of ancient tree. Maybe if you think of a sequoia or something like that, it might be on par with that. Um, but they grow into the thousands of years old. 
So there's these, wow. these trees there that have been there for thousand plus years. And uh, we wouldn't know that, of course, unless you look it up because there's no reference to it other than ancient forests. So if you don't, you don't really get a visual of that in the poem, you don't get the really the placement or location. You know, in that way, I, I almost thought it was like a, either a, a instructional poem because we, ha we have to look something up to really <laughs> like get it. And I probably spent more time, you know, Googling different things and, and reading a few, like even just short pieces just to get a, get a context um, than it takes to read the poem, which is not very long at all. So if I just felt that that interplay was kind of is you know not what I expected when I read this poem the first time. I think okay, that's nice, compact, good, you know, kind of does what it needs to do, nice. Uh, but yeah, then there's like you said, hidden. There's a lot hidden underneath and really pretty modest surface. And I think the context is not for us. You know, it's it, I don't feel that it's for me as a reader. And reading the rest of um, Corto's. Uh, submissions I had a similar feeling that there's something that just because of me being in New Hampshire and uh, you know there's something that I am not fully able to grasp or know and I was at peace with that and I think that that is one of its strengths. That means that at least three of us went on a very similar Google journey and part of me wants to step back and analyze the fact that we were forced to use Google as the mechanism by which to start trying to unpack a poem. But the fact that- I also that, use Wikipedia, Chris, so. Fair <laughs> enough, but I, of course, I got there through Google when I looked up. Um, the top of my notes, you shouldn't be able to see it, but the top of my notes said Chilean fjord. Is that possible that you can have a fjord in, in Chile? So that means we all kind of spontaneously went down a separate <laughs> journey. It would be wonderful to know. And I, if you have some behind the scenes on this one, I would like an answer to this. Uh, how much of that might have been deliberate? Let's kind of take someone on a journey into a series of terms, uh, cultural elements, but also ecological elements that you might not think of or meditate on. Uh, or if it was incidental, this is what this person was steeped in. So they're just using the words that would be natural to describe the moment that they were in. But since three out of four of us kind of went through a very similar journey, I'd, I'd be very curious. That's one thing I was thinking of is just the fact that like how that, how the, in one way, like how that absence make kind of creates the meaning. Cause if it was just something we, cause like it, how difficult is it to come up with a reference that you can't Google? I mean, so they, that like kudos that to that, you know, but how that, how that kind of constructs the meaning um, kind of that second layer of doing a bit of research and then having difficulty in trying to find what you're looking for, just in terms of a definition or pronunciation, not, you I mean, these aren't abstract questions I was looking for. Full disclosure, I had to look up estuary as I had a vague sense, but I found, is it like more like a swamp? Is it the place where the river meets the sea? And so I was already in that mindset. And if that was deliberate, that's genius. Sure, yeah. Thanks so much. It's so much our compulsion to check, to just type in define and then whatever word that we're stuck on. But in this poem, there is certainly not Google. You know, I don't I don't feel this sense that I'm sitting somewhere with my phone. And that's a nice right. it's a nice break. It feels different. And you know, we we you did the research with um Blue Venus too. You looked up the Botticelli to check 
the tone. So, I mean, it's just, it's instinctual almost. So to kind of have to break from that or to have the Google defy you, a new experience almost. No, I think that's a really, a really neat paradox about how we're, we're doing something with this poem that is clearly not being done in the poem or the point of the poem. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if, if there's any intentionality on the part of the, the author about that, but I, I do, my, my beyond the whole rabbit trail of searching, which I also did, <laughs> but beyond that, the, the poem just feels so contemplative to me. And I think the one word that maybe struck me the most or image that struck me the most was in the context of sort of a contemplative moment is um, the word trembling to describe the mountains because we have something here that's something here that's really sort of vast and sort of permanent and, and enduring mountains but they rise green and almost trembling and then plunge headlong to the estuary and the use of the word trembling for me reading this really brings up like this this feeling of how almost like the moment or is is a vision and it's trembling because it's not gonna because we can't hold on to it because it's really ephemeral just and, and when I think about like how often do I actually sort of take the time to sit in a contemplative moment even if I might be surrounded by all kinds of opportunities like to actually take the time and and to be there um that doesn't happen that often and it's and when it does happen it's so easy to be to be distracted for it to be um, you know just um, cracked or ruined by something um, something invading from the outside and so that image was really strong for me I don't know if that was intentional either but I felt like it worked really well to capture like the preciousness or the value of that vision yeah absolutely I would guess that that was intentional um, because if you just read the poet's bio um, he calls himself an environmental activist and so I, I think this preservation almost is coming through in the poem of an ancient forest of something that's trembling, um, that is, that even these mountains are subject to erosion, subject mm-hmm. to disappearance eventually, or being forgotten, um, right. at least. So I, I think that activism, that environmental, environmentalism is coming through in trembling in ancient forests in the contemplation itself. Yeah, yeah. striking about this one too is just the restraint of going headlong into that kind of message of, you know, this is this place is an, under a threat. We need, you know, these these trees are important. They've been around 2000 years. Can't cut them down. You know, it's like it's not so easy just even as a reader to to think that like once you look this place up and you get a sense of where it is. Like, oh, we need this place. I didn't, I didn't know about it 10 seconds ago, but this, like, <laughs> you know, this is such an amazing, uh, you know, place that can't be, uh, can't be, you know, tainted. But so the reference, I, I, it has to be intentional because I mean, how easy would it be to have to go into cliche territory again? I mean, you don't have to go too far away, I suppose, on the, on the same continent to, to get into cliche references on an environmental message. And then it, it, you know, those are followed by kind of emotional responses, and and it kind of gets you off way off track. Seems like the the association isn't to say I'm here, but this place isn't going to be here for very long, so I better appreciate it now. Like it, I don't that that doesn't come across in the poem, but as a reader, once you kind of find out about it, you kind of have that. Like, why didn't it say that? Because it's not going to be there. Very long. 
Does that make sense? Like that that, yeah, that yeah. kind of playing it forward. Like if you're in a place that you don't think is gonna stick around, like it's hard to enjoy. It's hard to enjoy, isn't it? But like if it had come across in the poem, I think it wouldn't have been as strong. Because uh, yeah, absolutely. Too yeah. too direct. Too yeah. If I go into teacher mode and I imagine uh, teaching this poem to the freshman students at their college level, the thing that I think is most valuable about poetry or one of the aspects or one of the functions, which is a terrible word, shouldn't have to have an objective, but one of the most important functions of poetry is to capture a moment or to capture a mindset. Uh, and like with a really good painting or a really good photograph, you're recreating it um, in a way that communicates but doesn't hit you over the head with a message or an agenda. Right. And this won me over with the line and I, the fact that I can't interpret this line is why it won me over. The flies have found me idle. So the, the fact that you put into the word idle, Anna, immediately uh, threw me in. And then I misread the second line after that. The flies have found me idle and they plant. And I read it as they plant their seeds on my brow. Immediately, I was thinking parasitic little seeds, little mites, little eggs. And <laughs> I had to go through the poem again. And this is much of how I read is just trying to look at my own misinterpretations. And I said, oh, that seize upon my brow. Um, I have no idea what to do with that. Does anybody have uh, a, a, an attempt at an interpretation of how are flies planting seas upon the brow of this person kind of meditating in, in nature? My my first thought upon reading that, and then, yeah, that is a, a word that is very easy to, to misread just on a technical level. You go right over it because you see plant you see plant there. It's like you just fill in the next word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, plant their seeds. I was just thinking kind of in the imagery of like a swarm or something like that as a sea, like kind of in the, just a figurative language, like a swarm of flies as a sea. It's not a pleasant experience, I guess. That adds to the poem in the sense that that by itself, a swarm, the word swarm would be an unpleasant image. But since you finish the poem in that kind of meditative state, um, the fact that the author can kind of introduce things that might creep people out in other contexts, um, the word sees there, uh, the volume, the the forces of nature involved uh, that are much more romantic and appealing. I think that's technical things that are successful that I didn't see the first several times I went through it. I really didn't know what to do with it. I, the only thing I could do, I had like this idea that like these flies have traveled a long way around the world and they've been to the different seas and now like the seas that they touched with their feet, they're now touching my forehead. And so there's like this transfer of the sea energy. I don't know. Yeah, I immediately I immediately went somewhere similar. I thought, you know, where else has, you know, have these humble little flies Mm -hmm. been? Um, But then I was also thinking about what if could the seas be sweat and to to a fly, maybe some droplets of sweat would be sea size to them. Yeah. (laughs) But so, you know, the speaker has obviously created and perspired this sweat, but there's this weird transference of who did what, where these flies come and almost deposit the sweat. It's also a way that the flies have sort of found you out. Like, you know, the flies have found me idle could be 
an accusation or it could be a praise. You know, it could be something amazing that this person has accomplished or it could be, hey, you're not doing anything. And so, you know, you kind of break out in a sweat. Um, I think the, and then the following line, unsettle the breeze. I think the previous line kind of has unsettled our idea of what the flies or the seas, what those could mean. And then you've got the seas, breeze, rhyming going on. So, yeah, I think there is a depth lurking. And just just because you brought it up and it's something I thought of as I was reading it, I think this is a great example of using rhyme within the within the stanza mm-hmm. within the lines so it, it's you know in each of the stanzas there's these couple of rhymes that if they were at the end of the line it would be like okay i'm out of this you know mm-hmm. you kind of get that it would be too much like seeming like methodical or something too forced but in inside the line you, you takes you know two three reads and say oh yeah season breeze like that's you know there's it creates that rhythm without creating the sense of you know kind of a forced phrasing. Yeah, I, I did feel like the, the use of rhyme in this poem was really well done, almost borderline, like almost risky, but but still worked. And also with like sort of the slant, it's just the, it's, it's more like, I think there's a word for this, I don't know what it is, but almost like the visual rhyme of, of brow and grow, which we don't have the same vowel sound, but it looks the same. <laughs> and so it adds a little something, yeah. it's kind of funny. <laughs> I wrote down risk too on my paper when I, earlier today. And I was, is this a risky poem? <laughs> I wrote that just because it it almost has the risk of being boring because it, you can lose the, the impact of it if you don't get the references, which are difficult to get. Mm-hmm. Um, so I connected it to like a, a like a Vladimir Demakov level, like masterful, like he plants some reference somewhere and says nothing about it. But like if you don't get it, you don't understand the whole novel. You know, like in the thing of like Palfire or something, there's like a reference and index that's like this whole puzzle aspect of of that, which is not quite as involved or, you know, convoluted in this one. But there is that element of like, you know, you got to you got to look this one up to get it. I thought that was just an interesting piece all around. I'm normally annoyed by that in an author, unless I get the reference. Yeah, of course. (laughs) Because it makes me feel good. Oh, I caught the inside joke. But then my immediate next question is, if the author is really good, you know, kind of orders of magnitude beyond me or the average reader, they might be like a street magician where they're planting all of those kinds of notes and a typical individual might only get one or two of the little secrets or the little puzzle code breakers. And I don't know of any authors that I could honestly say are doing that, at least with good humor. David Foster Wallace, I think, is doing it because he can't help it. Uh, I haven't uh, encountered an author that has that code breaker mentality where they're burying little secrets in, but it is with that spirit of, of good humor. Whereas I, I feel that in this poem, I actually feel that kind of kind of a very good natured sense that even if you catch none of the references, you get a quiet, pensive moment in a natural setting that we would normally not encounter. But it seems to kind of pop with a few of those little extra riddles. Can I offer uh, Cormac McCarthy as a writer who's able to do that, to have those? Yeah, that I would say that. David Foster Wallace, yes, I agree. McCarthy. McCarthy, that's an interesting example for me because narrative, just thematically, he grabs me if I catch none of the references. So there's mm-hmm. a, a story arc. The narrative 
will pull yeah. me in. The last time I read a, no- a novel almost straight through was The Road, where I just I could, literally couldn't put it down, and I was a little angry about it, but I just I had no choice. And I, I referenced uh, No Country for Old Men earlier because it has the most cliche plot ever. A guy finds a suitcase full of money and then the guys who are after the money come after the guy. And yet the movie and the novel are just unbelievably uh, powerful and potent and have these various layers going on. That I wonder if um, an author like Cormac McCarthy is doing some of that subconsciously. You don't have to get the reference or solve the puzzle, but you're still drawn into this level of high definition that is incredible. And personally, I feel like that maybe that that whole um, principle is very important um, to poetry. I I feel like that's sort of the test, though I shouldn't say that, but of a good poem is often like, can you get something from it even when you can't explain it or understand it at all? Does it make you feel something? Does it do something for you? And some of the best, some, some, for, for a long time, some of my favorite poems were poems I did not really understand at all. And it took me years of studying to really get them. But I still, they were still so powerful for some reason. A lot of like Eliot's work comes to mind. But mm. um, I feel like that's a, a, a sort of a central kind of, kind of quality of, of poetry. Um, maybe perhaps above and beyond other, other poems of art, though I'm not sure about that. Um, but. So as a typical... Um, terrible American. I basically only know one language and like maybe a, a percentile of Spanish where I can figure out where the bathroom or the library is, but I might go to the wrong one based on how little <laughs> I know of Spanish. So only knowing English, I would immediately wonder then some poems might translate very well from one language to another because what uh, is within them is kind of this thing that draws you in isn't based on quirks of language. And I don't mean that um, the quirk is something too clever or too gimmicky, but some poems may kind of work on a, a subconscious level based on the language they were written in, uh, whereas mm-hmm. others might be more thematic or more conceptual. Yeah. They will translate well. And yeah. it just makes me wish I knew more languages and makes me feel more in the sea of the inside jokes that I won't get. But that is what is appealing about a poem like this is I feel like some stuff snuck through the radar uh, that I can't explain or articulate. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll make the turn into uh, Dana Trupa, self-portrait yeah. as Krill. I love this one. <laughs> so again, we have a framework like in the title where we have to read this as a self-portrait, right? <laughs> and so, which makes it, which adds such an element, I think of, of sort of fun, and profundity at the same time. But this poem, I think in general, it's kind of a series of just unexpected things. And so I'll sort of run through it with some of the, the things that, that stood out to me. There's still life on Antarctica. So just the word of the use of the word still there, I find it it's, it's so um, so clever. It's just implying the sense of being after something or a sense of something enduring in spite of something. And pretty soon we're, we, we sort of get a, a sense of why that is. Why is there still life? Why would we not expect there to be life? And then we have this image of the, the mother and baby albatross parting, a delicate touching of beaks. And so it's somewhat somber, it's somewhat tragic, and kind of exacerbated by the, the, the delicate touching, like really um, anthropomorphizing a little bit sort of projecting emotions onto the animals, I think, in some way. And we, we the, the albatross is still a baby. So, like, why are they partying? Like, it's so sad. It's so sentimental. 
Um, and then we've got um, torture. Is that the parting? Is that like in the just the harsh environment of Antarctica? We have death. We have night. We have heaven help us, which I think is is I love using that phrase as we have a list of like sort of difficult things: death, night, and heaven help us. As another one of those difficult things, I think that's really clever linguistically. So now we kind of have our in spite of there's still life on Antarctica in spite of um, the brutality that's ravaging the windiest continent on Earth. And then, um, and so that's kind of a, a bit unexpected, um, the severity of the, the, the sort of torture imagery right after the animals. But then we get this this other abrupt contrast with these much sort of um, different natural images. We have wild honey. Where does wild honey linger on the fuchsia tongue of a bull elephant seal? And so we have like warmth, bees, softness, tropical flower. We, uh, the bull elephant seal is a flower for a tongue. Like it's, it's, it's really good there. But then we have another kind of subtler contrast, I think, because we're asking, okay, where is the the wild honey, maybe what that seems to be asking, is there any room for this kind of thing, this aspect of, of nature, this warmer, softer aspect, uh, maybe more hopeful, is there any room for that here, is kind of the question, maybe, um, this is the same in, in, in the next question, but then, so we have the wild honey as like something that's that's external, is it here, but then we have the, the fuchsia tongue of the seal, which is not a question, that that is like a statement that is here. That's internal to the landscape. That's already here, that element. Um, so maybe I'm going, trying to, to pull too much out of here or going too deep, but, you know, so I read the, the next one in the same way about the, the, the penguins and, and the warm sea glass. We have a similar kind of contrast there. And then I think we have the phrase that is maybe the, the heart of the poem to be nothing special in this world. And it, it brings us back to the self-portrait. Like, is this how the poet feels? Is this how the poet wants to feel? And then when we talk about, we have two words here that I think are really illuminating. The polyphony, which is, I again, went to Google and looked these up to be sure that I knew exactly what they meant. Um, and we have like this musical texture that is has multiple simultaneous lines of music that are sort of, melodies that are independent of each other and then the word syncopated we get something similar because there we get like a displacement of, of in music and Chris probably knows a lot more about this than I do can, can correct me on this but like a displacement of beats and accents so that strong beats become weak and vice versa and so with those two words I'm seeing kind of this room for a spontaneity or something um, a kind of, of freedom I don't know a kind of a certain description of, of, of the natural world here that's it's it's quite I'm not sure what to make of it but but I'm getting a that sense of, of movement and, and dynamism and then we have another unexpected sort of surprise contrasty thing with these the after this sort of eloquent kind of phrasing we have these really funny kind of amusing sounds tail flaps by hop krill joy and krill joy sounds so much like kill joy I just couldn't couldn't overlook that but and then there's the first instance of krill. Remember, we have a self-portrait as krill. And um, these funny kind of abrupt sounds, which lead us into um, the poet's description of herself as um, translucent, lined with phytoplankton, alive in whale mist, which 
that kind of for me captures, links back to being nothing special in this world and captures the sense of the, uh, the insignificance of the poet, but in a positive way, like it's, she's, she's translucent. We can see through her, maybe because she's transcending herself and recognizing like her oneness with the environment in some way. But then because it's a self-portrait as Krill, it was like, if I were Krill, I would be able to have this. So it's kind of a longing for this, this kind of, this way of being in the world. So that was my take. I have 18,000 things that I would like to say. Um, I'm sure. But, <laughs> but since you mentioned the musical stuff, uh, polyphony, I did have to look up. And the reason I looked it up is because I didn't know if it meant what I thought it meant, which is, you're absolutely correct, kind of a, combination of sounds that may or may not uh, make sense or be recordant, they might be discordant. Um, but I wondered if it was something like a phrase, like the parliament of owls, a group of owls isn't called a flock of owls, it's called a parliament. And I wondered if this was the technical Hi. word for what a group of humpbacks is called. And now it's a pod, the, the correct technical biological term is a pod of humpbacks. So polyphony must have meant the musical I had the musical definition baked in and then syncopation right after that. Yeah, of course, being a jazz guy who likes jazz and blues and funk it is where you are deliberately delaying notes to create an anticipation. And if you do it right or you do it consistently, then doing something wrong pulls you more into the music. And that's why polka, polka music is very similar to something like jazz mathematically. All jazz is is polka, but you syncopate it. You get a little lazy with the rhythm. You you, you hold back, and people might be drawn into that. And uh, so then we get to something where I might have had my cliche raider go off. Oh, tail slap, spy hop, which is another technical term for when the whale breaches the water. Krill joy. Uh, here we are trying to create the sounds and the experiences in the poem. But she, I, I was already run over at that point. Was, nothing could go wrong because I'd already been pulled in. And so I actually heard the tail slap as opposed to was analyzing the tail slap. In other words, the poem pulled me into itself enough so I was experiencing it rather than analyzing it. So when I got to I'm translucent or lined with phytoplankton, uh, I wasn't overwhelmed trying to visualize can the krill survive the whale mist? Because theoretically the whale mist is when it ejects the water after it should have eaten the plankton, I didn't have to worry about that. They, they kind of, uh, again, pulled me into the structure and the foundational architecture of the poem. So I was like, yep, translucent, lined with phytoplankton. I can picture it in my head. That image is doing something to me. And I wasn't uh, in puzzle mode. How can I solve and get to the bottom of whether or not the plankton is still alive? when the giant plume of mist comes out of the bubble. There's like just a little bit of weirdness, unexpectedness. I kind of like, like what you said. It kind of brings you in, but then kind of just takes a little turn. Then it's like, why did that happen? Um, and just the lines and the language, the you know, word choices in the lines are just unexpected enough to keep the imagery going or it's not jarring. It doesn't take you out of the, the setting, or but it just keeps you like... For me, the title sets it up perfectly because it has that sense of humor and self-deprecation mm-hmm. built into thematics of the same thing. Sure. Um, yeah. But then when I got to the word brutality, that's where I kind of I said, wait, wait, wait. I had one expectation. 
Does anybody have a sense uh, when we get to heaven help us as brutality ravages? Um, the word brutality there could have gone a couple different directions. Any thoughts? Yeah, for me, it was like another, another one of those sort of kind of unexpected things. It was like escalating because I, I started with you like with that kind of um, because of the title. It's sort of amusing. Then we get sort of sentimental and then we sort of escalate and we get uh, pretty harsh. And then there's just at each each little section. There were I don't know how many sections, but they, they hung together. And yet it was it was so unexpected like that. That was that. Yeah, that's why I introduced it is. The, the characteristic that, that struck me the most. Yeah, I, I would just connect it to like um, going back to Kelly Gray's poem, like the, the wind coming off the mountain that might blow a tree on top of your cabin and then game over. It's just like, you know, there's something there that is, it's um, it's that impersonal nature that it's also there as, as along with the beauty and the and all the other you know all the other layers that why we like it and find it interesting and want to you know want to preserve it and all that other stuff it's just yeah it'll kill you too but they just kind of i guess took it in that direction well with the title being self-portrait as krill and that first line having still life in it if there's that double meaning of still life there's both life persisting and is this perhaps a still life rendering of a self-portrait? Okay. Yeah, that was one of the biggest things that struck me. And then, you know, a still life, you think, I think of bowl of fruit, flowers, some flies, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, hinting at death, hinting at the overripe fruit that's about to go bad, hinting at some sort of motion. But then this poem has such such motion to it and such living breathing whales and even the krill becomes this like far-flung thing in the whale mist um so it's interesting to try to deal with the word still in an environment that is constantly changing constantly moving but i was very interested in how the poem was able to escalate as you were saying and bring in words like brutality which have such a violent action but it's promising me something that is still. And in the end, we do almost have this snapshot moment of krill flung out into the air alongside mist, which is also kind of this translucent little being. And then, of course, I'm thinking, oh, whales, oh, Moby Dick. I'm thinking um, what he says about no great and enduring volume being written about the flea. And I'm thinking about um, krill and flea being kind of similar you know they're small they're shelled beings they're kind of translucent they're maybe not the number one thing you want to hang out with but there is something ambitious here to try to give the krill you know something as small as a flea or a little shrimp-like creature to give them the which is also to give yourself the base of the leviathan the space of the mighty whale. So there, there is, there is also sort of an allusion to art and perhaps an allusion to Melville. And I was, I was really enthralled and I was, I was really, I really liked this poem. I have to ask, do you have a, an author's note on this one? Any behind the scenes before well, I say I what am, I, I am out of author notes. Oh, no. I, I have the two. Okay. I was able uh, to well, get the two and, uh, do we have a rough date of creation for this piece? 
Um, nothing, nothing officially other than assuming it was, you know, fairly recent. Right. So you, um, now that we've brought up Melville, I, I feel terrible about this, but I have to bring up the movie Happy Feet. Is anyone familiar with this <laughs> Disney movie? Where Brad, I yeah, believe, I I'm not sure I'm right, but you, if you know what I'm talking about, there's a scene where Brad Pitt and Matt Damon, at the time they were like, you know, the male sexual paragons, uh, played Krill, meditating on the meaning of life on the basis of how small they were, were in a world of void and chaos. And it was so out of place. It was cute, but, you know, it was this Pixar Disney animated movie where two Krill meditate like please as to how small small and meaningless their existence might be and of course i when i got to the uh, end I, I wondered if this was deliberate if this was written before if this was written after um and of course it could be just one of those metaphors like there's lots of fish in the sea where it's just such a good metaphor it could be completely coincidental um mm -hmm. but since you brought up melville i have to, I have to bring up brad <laughs> it playing a quill that's new to me. Same yeah, that's level. Yeah. Well, that's the thing is, it was a, it was a lowbrow movie that was designed to kind of reach a large audience, and yet they deliberately wanted to flirt with the profound. And you know, for somebody who's interested in teaching and psychology and philosophy, was like, that was brave. That was a brave move for a commercial Hollywood movie. And the fact that the krill was the mechanism for that for this bizarrely high-level philosophical conversation. And it happens in other movies like that, where you suddenly see Johnny Depp as the pirate in Pirates of the Caribbean suddenly have a moment of existential insights out of nowhere, and then they just kind of move on like nothing happened. So I get the joke, but since it was Krill, I wondered if it was a coincidence. I'll have to contact Dana now and ask <laughs> if she is a Pixar fan. <laughs> Um, yeah, that's yeah, interesting. Google that's uh, Brad Pitt Krill, and you'll see this little scene where Brad yeah. Pitt is a Krill meditating on the nature of existence in the conscious void and whether or not we have a soul. Well, I think that about uh, that wraps it up for our pieces. We covered a lot of ground. I'm going to have to do some edits with this one. <laughs> get, get us uh, in a reasonable... Part of the joy and the frustration for me was once I started looking for themes, I started superimposing that on the next piece. So again, they kind of the yeah, this, last, the last one we did, um that kind of happened also. And then this one for sure. I think so that's whoever is cultivating the order in which we see these or will read these yeah. will be responsible. Well, I, did the, I did the I did the order. interpretation. Yeah, I did the order. I'll take credit for that, but I didn't do the selections. I, said well, I mean other than credit. Yeah, other than selecting them partially in the we should arrange so that everybody reads them in a different order. I know. We all bring different perspectives. <laughs> like a blind. We had a controlled study. That's right. Yeah, we do uh, <laughs> a blind tasting in the, in the whiskey world or something. We do blind reading. <laughs> that's that's an idea for for next round table. Um, do yeah. Do no names. No. Uh, How much like test? And there could or might not be whiskey involved. That's that also sounds appealing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we'll figure. Maybe we'll figure something out. I think that about does it. Uh, so thanks for joining me. This Chris is really a pleasure. Shannon, we'll be back at it. I'm thinking of doing these like every off month. If we do an issue every other month, 
do one of these like for the opposite. So I want to get this out in June, new issue in July, and then do like the round table for August. It's kind of offset it a little bit instead of doing it on uh, on the issue. For anybody so listening, this is the second June after COVID. So thank you very much, especially because this is the closest I've come in a long time to a fun night out. So I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. there's a truth to that yeah right so yeah i mean an extra thanks because yeah otherwise i would just be you know whatever wondering if poems are good and uh, trying to publish does this should this good publishing what the hell yeah i know right (laughs) well anyway um talk to everybody later Uh, well thanks so much you guys It was great. Really enjoy your conversation.